So we're talking about temptation today, guys. How about that, right? And, and it is something that evidently we all struggle with, right? We've all faced temptation. There was a story of a husband and wife that went uh, to the mall one day and the husband said, listen, we're, we got to agree. We're not going to buy anything today unless we each have others, uh, you know, permission. We're just going to browse today, right? So they got to the mall and they decided, let's separate ways and let's just kind of browse around and look around. And so the wife went off and she, of course, started looking at some dresses, saw one that she really loved and tried it on. And this thing just looked great. She loved it. She was so tempted to buy it. She ended up buying it. He comes back, meets up with her husband. Husband sees the wife coming with a big shopping bag. And he's like, what in the world? Like we, he's like, I thought we agreed that we weren't going to buy anything. We we're just browsing today. And she's like, I know, but this dress is so amazing. I was so tempted to buy this dress. And the husband goes, well, you got to do what I do when I'm tempted. I just say, get behind me, Satan. And the wife said, I tried that. Husband said, well, what happened? She said, he said, the dress looks great from behind too. <laughs> so it is an issue that we all are going to wrestle with, this area of temptation. And that's what we're going to look at today. Look at verse 1 with me, chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus has come, and he's identified himself with sinful humanity. We saw that. In the last study, Matthew uh, chapter 3, at Jesus' baptism, he came and he's baptized, taking his place among sinful humanity. And it's there at his baptism that he's filled with the, the Holy Spirit and now being led out by the Spirit. Now, we can oftentimes think, can't we, that Jesus, you know, could just handle any kind of pressure and pain that he faced in life because he's the Son of God after all, that he wasn't really affected by these things. Like he had some, you know, we think sometimes this divine force shield around him that, you know, whatever the enemy tried just bounces off. Jesus like, yeah, that doesn't bother me, you know. Or any pressure, any problems just kind of bounces off him like it's no big deal. He's the son of God. He can handle all these things. But understand, though he was fully God and never ceased being God, he came and emptied himself, we read in God's word, of the very benefits of God. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 7, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So in Jesus's identity, he was fully God, but yet in his form, he was fully human. And that means he experienced and felt the very things that we're gonna face, the pressures, the pains, the, the emotions. He faced all these things and experienced these things as being man. And what we read about here is that he's being led by the Spirit. And he's being empowered by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that comes and, and, and overflows in him at his baptism and now leads him out. In other words, the very resource that Jesus had to depend on and lead him through these things is the very same resource that we have to carry us and strengthen us in the battle that we are going to find ourselves in. It's the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit readily available to help us. And this temptation that Jesus is going to experience, he might go, well, what, what is... If, you know, he's fully God and, and couldn't sin, what's the purpose of the temptation? Well, it's again to bring him into greater identification with humanity. He is fully experienced now what we ourselves are going to face and experience in this world. Because we can oftentimes think, you know, nobody knows the kind of struggle and the temptation that I go through. And Jesus certainly could not relate to what I'm dealing with. And yet, here's what we read in Hebrews 2. 
17 to 18. Therefore, in all things, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, notice this, being tempted. He suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. That's very important for us to recognize. He didn't just have this force shield on, being God, just go like, temptation, no big deal. Pfft. Didn't feel a thing. He's like, no, he suffered in this temptation. And in fact, sometimes maybe you go, he suffered more because he was tempted but could never go through with it. Sometimes we have relief sometimes in going through it, not that it's good or wise or helpful, but it's kind of like, okay, I did that. He could never have done that. And in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted in all points, in every way as we are, so that he can identify, relate, and sympathize with us. Isn't that wonderful to know, guys? How many people feel weak from time to time? And yet, we have a savior who not only recognizes that, but now comes alongside in that support and sympathy, knowing what it's like because he's been there. He's been there. How awesome that is. So don't let your weakness cause you to hide in shame, but come all the more to a savior who understands and is available to help. As we read in Hebrews 4:16. let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the, the, the privilege we have now as children of God knowing that, man, I struggle, yes, I'm gonna face temptation, but I have one that knows exactly what that's like. He's been there and he calls us to come to him to where we're gonna find that help and support. Now, before we continue on in this passage, I wanna clear up a few things about temptation for us before we, we continue on to look at this a little bit more. I'll share some thoughts about temptation. First of all, temptation is not from God. James 1.13 makes it clear that no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, that can be kind of confusing because we read in Matthew 4.1 that Jesus was led out by the Spirit almost as though God was orchestrating all this and leading all this through. And, and to that we can say, well, actually, yeah, he was because God is sovereign and he's in control of all things. But understand, he does not tempt anyone. Satan is the one that does that. But God now in his sovereignty and his control of all things, he allows those things to happen, not to hinder us or hurt us, but rather to help us and, and refine us. He, he wants to work through those things to bring about his purposes in our lives and make us more like his son. So God has a purpose in allowing Satan to carry out that role of temptation, which he does. The book of Job illustrates that for us so clearly when when God allows Satan to go after Job. Not that God's saying, I think I'm gonna really try to take Job down. He's like going, okay, Satan wants to do that and I'm gonna allow that because it's gonna fulfill my purposes. Secondly, your temptation is not unique. 
All of you 2-7 students that have been through our, our discipleship class, you've all had these great memory verses, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of them, the, the assurance of victory, which says no temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. See, sometimes again, like I've alluded to, we can think that no one can understand or relate to the kind of temptation that I'm going through. And we can begin to think like, we're so special, like Satan's got some specific and unique tactic uh, uh, of trying to tackle us that he only uses on us and he doesn't use on anybody else. And, and you know, we got this big target, like nobody can understand. We can think that way sometimes and go, you just don't understand the kind of struggle I'm going through to where we almost justify sin in the process. But understand something, the Bible says, no, there's nothing unique about what you're going through. There's nothing special about you. Your temptation is actually quite common. Others have experienced it, they've battled through it, and they've come out victorious, and so can you. That's what we learn here. In fact, we're told that God won't allow anything beyond what you can handle. So when you succumb to temptation, it's as though you're kind of saying, God, actually, I, I couldn't handle it. And in a sense, we're calling God a liar. He says, I'm not gonna give you anything that you cannot handle. I'm gonna provide a way for you to escape. And so if we fall prey to temptation, it's only because we have not obediently gone through that way of escape that God has provided. No other excuse or reason other than we just simply succumbed to that temptation. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's possible because with God, all things are indeed possible. Lastly, number three, temptation is not sin, all right? Some of you are going, Phew, thank you for sharing that because man, I, you thought you'd been sinning for the last 10 minutes here being tempted. No, temptation is not sin. James 1, 14 to 15 says, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. So understand having thoughts or being tempted does not mean that you're sinning. It's what we do with those thoughts and temptation. And that's what Satan uses, you see, to lead us into sin. He gets us to think about something that is apart from God's way or will, gets us to entertain that thought. And when we begin to allow that thought to give birth to action, that's what leads to sin. But we need to be careful. Don't just sit there and go, okay, great. I can just, you know, allow those thoughts. No, a thought can come, but it's what you do with that thought. A temptation can come, that's what you do with that temptation. We're called in God's word, 2 Corinthians 10, verse five, to bring every thought into captivity under the obedience of Christ. So it's very important that we don't just think, well, I'm not acting on it. If you're, if you're entertaining that thought and you're dwelling on it, you're, you're acting on it. Take every thought captive. But understand when you're tempted, that in itself is not sin until there's an entertaining and a action taken from that. So those are some thoughts about temptation that I just want to clear up as we get into this. And so moving along now in verse two of Matthew four, and when he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now that's significant, right? Because Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. 40 days is the biblical number of, of testing trial. We've seen many people 
uh, you know, throughout the word that have gone through a period of 40 days. And it's a kind of uh, picture of testing and trial that they're in. And Jesus is truly being tested here, not to see if he can sin, but rather to show that he won't sin under this kind of heavy tempting and trial that he's in. He's God and he could not sin, but he's man and he felt the full effect of this temptation and testing. This was not easy. This was a difficult thing that Jesus went through. And to make things even worse is that he's coming out of a, a fast. He's been fasting for 40 days. Now, the understatement of the chapter, maybe the understatement of the book of Matthew is that after 40 days of fasting, we read, he was hungry. Afterward, he was hungry. That's like the understatement of the book here, I think. I know when I've you know, fasted for 40 days, I experience a real like hunger. I know you're laughing. I've, I've gone 40 days, uh, I fast between lunch and dinner. 40 days I've done that in a row and it was, it was tough. But see, when you fast that long, you initially are gonna experience a, a real hunger as your body's no longer getting the kind of regular diet it's accustomed to. But what happens is you begin to fast for a little bit, your body begins to feed off of the, the fat and the, the different things that are stored up in your, in your system. And you can begin to settle in to fast to where you no longer are dealing with that hunger pangs and you're struggling through, you just kind of settle in. But then you're gonna, as further that you go, you're gonna reach a point where your body's going, okay, I'm running out of nutrients, I'm running out of uh, a fat stored up here, and now your body goes into kind of crisis mode where it's saying, I need food or else things are not gonna go well for you here. And your body begins to react with extreme hunger pangs as you reach a, a point, and Jesus is at that point right now, 40 days. You can't go much further than that, and he's reaching this point where he's in extreme crisis and desiring Food, And that's why we read afterward, he was hungry. This is significant and important. And this is often where the devil wants to strike you is when you are at your weakest point, he's waiting to pounce and, and, and just devour you when you have little to resist or fight. And that's why we need to always be on guard and be aware of the devil's schemes and tricks because here comes the devil now at a point where Jesus is really at a, at a weak point. So as we get into this, we're gonna see the devil is gonna have three opportunities to try to bring Jesus down and, and, and cause him to be tempted and succumb to the temptation to where he is disqualified as our redeemer and our savior. That's Satan's attempt here. If Satan can make Jesus go and sin or, or just simply go against the will of God, then Jesus will not be able to be our perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin. So it's an opportunity for Satan to gain a potential victory in this moment. But understand this is also an opportunity for Jesus to chart a new course for all of humanity. A course that was derailed by Adam in the garden when Adam was placed there and given a, an abundance of food to eat, but one tree not to eat of and Adam and Eve fell to the temptation of Satan and they went against God's will and everything went bad from then on. See, Jesus is coming to repair all of that now. And what's interesting is, is just to make sure that you have no doubt now concerning Jesus's worthiness of doing so, the Father kind of stacks the deck against Jesus. Because it's interesting to kind of see the comparison between 
when Adam fell and when Jesus is being tempted because Adam, like I said, is in a beautiful garden, right? He's in fellowship with God. They're walking in the coolness of the day. They got animals all around. They got like a living zoo where no, no fences are up because nobody's attacking one another. They got just a beautiful environment and they got an abundance of food to eat. Jesus, on the other hand, he's in a hot, dry, barren wilderness, rugged terrain, lots of rocks, no shelter. And Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Jesus is at his weakest state when he has to deal with the devil. The, the, the deck is stacked against Jesus. It's as though the father's saying, you know what? I wanna show the significance that it's not just a good environment that's gonna provide you to walk in an obedient way because it didn't happen for Adam. But now I'm gonna do something in a way that's gonna show how victory can come in the midst of even great difficulty. So we see the first temptation being given, verse three. It says there in verse three, now when the tempter came to him, that's the devil, the accuser of the brethren, the one that's out to devour your soul. When the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So Satan's first attack was to have Jesus satisfy his own needs independent of his father. And understand when Satan comes and he says, if you are the son of God, that's a very good question to ask as though Satan was kind of tempting him to say, prove yourself. But I believe Satan knows that he's the son of God. I don't think Satan is asking this in a way like, show me that you really are. I think Satan knows he's the son of God. And it's being written more in the, the, the construction of the Greek here is really more saying, since you are the son of God, just like we read in Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? It's not if God is for us. We know since God is for us, who can be against us? So Satan's coming to Jesus saying, listen, since you're the son of God, well, you've got the power. You've got the power. You know your need right now. You're, you've been fasting for 40 days. You've got the power. Just go ahead. Turn these stones to bread. So again, Satan is challenging Jesus to act outside of the will of God. Since you're the son of God, you can do this. And what a fitting miracle this would have been, this would have been exactly what Jesus needed in that time, his body's in crisis mode. He's needing to, to supply what his body is needing to keep him alive. He could have easily justified this. Satan knows exactly what he needs and he comes now discussing bread. I mean, it's kind of like a dirty play in Satan's book right now, right? Hey, I know exactly where to kind of hit you. Satan knows where to hit us oftentimes. He's a master manipulator and schemer. He's shrewd and he'll come at you in a way that almost seems to be justifiable, okay? Almost as though it could be God's will to do what Satan is tempting you to do. Because here's Jesus now, he needs food. He could have easily said, yeah, you know what? I can turn these stones to bread and I'm sure this would be Okay, would that have been a sin for Jesus to turn stones to bread? No, it wouldn't have been a sin. But it would have been wrong because that was not what God had from that time. God's not brought him out of that fast yet. God's bringing him through this time right now to reveal his need to depend upon the Father and to carry out the will of the Father. And we need to be sure that we don't succumb to sin through a false justification. Because we have the word of God to reveal to us God's will. And don't contradict that. Because oftentimes, I've heard Christians justifying a certain action that the Bible clearly says is sin, but they do so through kind of a roundabout way, thinking that 
this surely is what God would want for me. I've seen couples in marriage separate and, and, and divorce oftentimes with the excuse of, well, you know what? We've just been fighting a lot. It's not been a good marriage and God just wants me to be happy. You've heard that before. I've heard it lots of times. And I'm like, no, God is not wanting you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. And when you walk in obedience to what the word of God says, not contradicting it to satisfy your desires. And when you choose to walk obediently to him and walk in holiness, guess what? You're gonna be happy. Cause that's what's gonna lead to your happiness is carrying out God's will in your life. But how we sometimes justify sin and Jesus could have easily justified the thinking, well, that's gonna be for my help now to further combat the enemy. I gotta fuel up but it's not what God had for him at this time. Now, some rabbis believe that when the Messiah comes on the scene, the miracle of the, of the manna would start up again. And so it's almost like Satan is going, hey, you know what can really help your cause here? Since you're the son of God, just turn these stones to bread. That's gonna really trigger people to think and realize, oh, this guy must truly be the Messiah. That's why in John 6, when Jesus begins to feed the, the 5,000 with the, the miracle of the, the bread and the, and the fish, people are flocking to him. Many, I'm sure, are thinking, this has gotta be the guy that we're waiting for. And many flooded to follow Jesus until they began to see the actual message behind following Jesus and many departed away. But this is again a tactic that the enemy would use, like, this has gotta be the will of God for you. Turn the stones to bread. And again, Satan's hope here is simply to get Jesus to act independently of the Father. It was the Father's will to have Jesus fast until an appointed time and to submit to Satan's temptation and satisfy his hunger would have been for Jesus to circumvent the will of God. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse four. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus quotes from scripture and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three of all places. Deuteronomy, the context of that passage is the Israelites in the wilderness who tested God with their complaining over food and drink. They didn't have anything and they're like crying out to God thinking, you just brought us here to cause us to die. And they're challenging God. They're testing him. Well, God provided manna for them, but it's also that they may know that they're not just to be living by their physical craving, they're to be living in pursuit of God and in a way that honors God in walking obediently to him. Obedience to the Father was the most important thing for them. That was an area that the Israelites greatly struggled with. But here now Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed. And so Jesus quotes, that passage in Deuteronomy to show that he's not gonna to submit to the flesh. He's not gonna be driven or led by the flesh, but rather he's gonna be led by the will of God. He's gonna to submit to the will of God and he'll choose to follow in obedience to God's word. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by everywhere that proceeds from the mouth of God. In the suffering, look at what Hebrews 5.8 says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So again, Jesus now, that's why this was heavy upon him. Jesus had a choice. Am I gonna carry out what I think is needed for me or am I gonna live according to the will of God? He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
This was no picnic for Jesus. Just because he's the son of God didn't mean this was easy. He suffered. But yet through that suffering, he set the, the path for us, the example. And he carried out obedience to the Father. Now, notice Jesus is going to be tempted in three ways. Each time that Jesus is going to be tempted, he's going to resist that temptation. How? By quoting scripture. We read three times in, in this passage. What? Those three words? Somebody shouted out. It is written. Thank you. Three times Jesus says, it is written. What does that tell you? It tells us that you got to know the word of God. Jesus was able just to rattle the scripture off from Deuteronomy. It was already in his heart. I think this is kind of where his quiet time was that week in the wilderness. He's like, been, been in Deuteronomy. Suddenly it's like, man, this word is just popping out of his heart. Now you can all say, this is easy for him, right? I mean, didn't he write the thing after all? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't he already know this? Yes, but he gives us the principle and importance of having the word in your heart. Because the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Is the word of God hidden in your heart? Is that the tool that you use to resist temptation and a fight against the enemy to go, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna know the word, I'm gonna uphold the word, I'm gonna live out the word of God. I mean, if you're being spared from sin, dependent on your ability to quote from Deuteronomy, how would you fare? <laughs> it's an honest question, right? And I'd be like, okay, wait, wait, devil, hold on, due to uh, what, due to who? He'd be like, I'm in a lot of duty here, like I'm in trouble. I, I've got nothing, I'm blank in here. But how we need to be in the word and ensure that the word of God is in you and allowing that word to, to come out to equip us and strengthen us to live it out, let it strengthen, and lead you. In the next temptation, Satan tries now to tempt Jesus to test God's faithfulness. Look at verse five with me. Then the devil took him into the holy city, Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. So Satan brings Jesus now up to a very high point in the temple, a point that maybe believe was, you know, looking down in a, in a long way down to the Kidron Valley, a great height there. And again, Satan is challenging Jesus, not, not so much to prove if you are the son of God, but since you are the son of God, hey, nothing's gonna harm you. You can do some magnificent feat right now and people are gonna be amazed at you. You can do this since you are the son of God. And I think Satan's causing Jesus to really test the faithfulness of God. Almost like he's saying, listen, if God really loves you, he's not gonna allow anything to happen to you. Is that the way that Satan loves to put doubts in our minds as well? Where you're going through a situation and Satan wants to come and whisper in your ear, listen, if God really loves you, you wouldn't be going through this. Or if God is real, he would cause this to be a void in your life. Satan wants us to doubt the existence of God and doubt the love of God for our lives based on what we're going through. Jesus has just gone through a 40-day fast. He's weak. Perhaps he's wondering, how much longer, Father? But again, like I said, God's not trying to hurt Jesus or inflict pain. He's allowing Jesus to go through this trial to prove him, to test him, and prepare him for what's going to be laying ahead. God's always faithful to do for us that which will ultimately better us and help us. 
We may not always see it at the time, but we need to trust him in it. And notice, not only does Jesus, not only does Jesus know the word, but Satan knows the word of God too. And Satan's using the word now. Not very well, I will say, but he quotes from Psalm 91, verse 11. But what Satan does is he leaves out part of it. That's kind of what he did with Adam and Eve, right? He challenged it based on the word of God. Did, did God's word really say, you know? And, and Eve sadly kind of added to it, but here Satan is taking away from it because Psalm 91, 11 says, for he shall give his angels charge over you, but here's what Satan leaves out. To keep you in all your ways. And not so much to keep you in all your ways, but to keep you in the ways of God. To keep you walking in a way that's in line with God's will. In other words, when we're following God's ways, God's gonna uphold us. We however try to get our will fulfilled and we try to govern things around serving ourselves. And when they're outside of God's will, that can happen. Or at least it won't happen with God's blessing. Now, what's interesting is again, there were rabbis that taught and believed that when the Messiah comes, based on Malachi 3.1, that when the Messiah comes, he's gonna appear from the temple. It's gonna be this grandiose kind of entrance from the temple. So interesting how Satan brings Jesus up to the temple to a high point where everybody can see, where there's crowds down, everybody can see him. And Satan's like, you know what? Throw yourself off from here. And that's gonna really get people's attention. People are gonna be like, oh, he's just launched himself off of this temple here and he's just kind of floated down like a feather. My goodness, this has gotta be the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Satan's like, I'm just trying to help you out here. I'm not, Jesus, I'm not telling you what to do, but this would really help your cause. People will really all of a sudden realize you're the guy, you're gonna have a, an, an immediate following. But look at how Jesus responds, verse seven. Jesus said to him again, it is written, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. See, Jesus knew that we're not to put God to the test. We're not to challenge God's faithfulness by demanding our interest be met on our terms. We're to simply trust God and obey him. So Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy. Every quotation he gives here is from Deuteronomy. Here it's in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16 and 17. Here's what it says. It says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. That's referring to Exodus 17, seven, when again I alluded to earlier, the Israelites were testing God. We got nothing to drink. You're not providing for us. They're challenging God. He says, don't tempt the Lord that way. But then he goes on to say in Deuteronomy 6, verse 17, quoting this, you shall diligently keep his commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. So Jesus says, don't test the Lord your God. It says that in Deuteronomy 6. But the full passage is, keep his commandments. See, we may have scriptures that sound very positive and can seem like launching points to, you know, well, like launch ourselves off the roof thinking that God's gonna spare you. It says it right there in his word, but how we need to take the full counsel of God's word and allow scripture to interpret itself because Satan's leaving things out. Saying you can do this, but it's not in accordance with God's word. And what God's word says is keep his commandments, follow his will. Scripture is always the best interpreter of scripture. It will never contradict itself and it will further explain itself. So Jesus adds this now to say, this is what's needed. This is what's necessary. Jesus knew that though God would uphold him, we're not to challenge him to do so on our own terms. Have you submitted to the will of the Father? 
Have you questioned God's faithfulness? Have you put out challenges to him based on what you wanna see happen in your life in your way? Or have you submitted wholeheartedly to God, whatever you have for me, I know that's gonna be the best for me. So let me walk in obedience to that. Well, third temptation we see in verse eight. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Now, in this next temptation, it's interesting because Satan tries to tempt Jesus with a kingdom. And you might go, whoa, hold on a second. Isn't everything in the world the Lord's? He created it? Yes. It's all the Lord's. But understand something. That dominion of the world was given over to Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation and sin. And that dominion was then handed over to Satan. It's interesting because in John 12, verse 31, Jesus will call Satan the ruler of this world. Jesus doesn't dispute this claim when Satan says, all the kingdoms of the world I'll give to you. Jesus doesn't laugh in his face. He goes, what are you talking about? They're already mine. But here's the thing. Jesus came to this world and he's gonna go to the cross. And at the cross, he secures the victory. Satan is a defeated foe. And he's on borrowed time. And one day Jesus, though the world now is rightfully his, there's coming a time yet future where Jesus is gonna lay claim to that which is his. Revelation five tells us that the scene in heaven, people were weeping because there was a scroll and nobody was worthy to open this scroll and release its seals until the Lamb of God came, Jesus Christ. He was only worthy to take the scroll. Many believe that that scroll speaks of the title deed to the earth. And as the seals are released of that scroll, that's where the seals in Revelation are being released. And again, having a direct uh, link to the things that are happening in the world. Jesus is laying claim to that which is already his. So yes, so Satan is right now ruling. He's ruling from this world and using this world, but he's on borrowed time. The world is rightfully his, rightfully Jesus's. And one day he's gonna lay claim to that. Right now he's allowing Satan to carry out his work, which is actually furthering God's work. Is that amazing? Like, I, you wonder sometimes why Satan just doesn't give up, right? Why he doesn't just say, there's no point. Because everything I try to do, you flip around and make it good. And you, and you carry your purposes through it. But remember, Satan's a deceiver. I think he's deceived himself. I think he's so blinded out of hatred and hostility to God that he's continuing on in his ways, not seeing what the inevitable outcome is. So what Satan is essentially tempting to say here in this temptation is to Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross to claim this kingdom. I'm, I'll just give it to you, but it's gonna come at a cost. It's gonna come at the cost of allegiance and worship of Satan. That's the problem when we give in a temptation. It comes at a cost. We might think it's no big deal. Nobody's gonna be affected by it. But giving in a temptation, walking in sin, always comes at a cost. Because you're denying God's will in your life and you're carrying out Satan's will. You're, you're, you're aligning yourself with him. 
It always comes at a cost. We know ultimately the cost of that sin is death. And if we don't nip it in the bud, that's where it leads. Don't think that you can get away with sin. It'll always cost you more than you want to pay, take you further than you want to go. It ends leading in death. Don't play around with sin. Don't entertain or play around temptation. Satan's goal is to devour you. But Jesus has already defeated him. He went to the cross. He didn't succumb to the will of Satan. He carried out the will of the Father. He went to the cross that we could be forgiven of sin. That sin no longer has to rule in our lives or have the penalty of that sin exacted against us. Jesus has already paid the penalty for that sin to all those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, here's Jesus again in verse 10. Answering the devil saying to him, away with you Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God in him only you shall serve. So Jesus again quotes Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. So again, following the word of the Lord. God is the only one that deserves our worship and allegiance. And when we serve him only, we're going to be living a life most pleasing to our Father and most satisfying to us. I pray that we're learning that. So Satan, understand, tempts us and uses the same kind of tools as he's always done the same tactics he's always used first john 2 16 says for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world and with that we see self-gratification lust of the flesh self-protection lust of the eyes self-exaltation pride of life it's the way that satan has always acted it's what he did with with adam and eve the temptation of self-gratification for them was Saying this, God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Surely you can have it all. Have at it. Lust of the flesh. For Jesus, it was command these stones become bread. With Adam and Eve, the temptation of self-protection was, you're not going to die. You surely are not going to die. Again, twisting around God's word, changing it up. For Jesus, it was all these things I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. That's the lust of the eyes. Now, it's interesting because this here is the third temptation but in Luke's gospel, this was the second temptation. Luke's following a more chronological view. Matthew's writing to declare Jesus as the Messiah. So many believe that this temptation is actually the second temptation, which would fit again with what we see in 1 John 2, 16. Now that that's important, but here's, again, this tactic used. And then the temptation of self-exaltation for Adam and Eve was, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. For Jesus, it was throw yourself down, for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you. That's the pride of life. It's the way the enemy constantly comes at us. Verse 11 ends by saying, and the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. I can imagine the angels just laying out a big old buffet for Jesus there in the world. And it's just like, have at it, man. Put your feet, they're there massaging his feet. You know, that, I don't know, that, that's maybe weird. But, um, <laughs> but they're ministering to him. I love that because God now, after Jesus comes through this, is, is just caring for him, strengthening him, ministering to him, blessing the Lord. Walking in obedience is always going to lead to the blessed life, my friends. And here Jesus is being taken care of. Now, Luke tells us that the devil departed from him until an opportune time. In other words, the devil left him for now. For now. How we always need to be 
on guard. Now, worship team, I'm going to invite you to come up. We're going to close with a song, but what do we learn from all this? Let me just share a couple more things just as we close here. First of all, we recognize there is a devil. He's not some make-believe thing. He's a, a real being who was a created angel who desired to be worshiped as God was, filled with pride and was cast down from heaven. He's in a rage continuously to devour God's plans, to devour God's people. Devil is real. He's out to take you down. But notice something. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. Those are qualities reserved for God alone. The devil is not reading your thoughts or constantly berating you. He's not everywhere at once. But he has systems in place. Demons carry on his work. He's the ruler of this world to where he's using things in the world to draw us in and entice us into sin. But so often we're just quick to go, oh, the devil made me do it. Man, the devil's been working hard. Half the time the devil's going, I don't even know what you're talking about. I wasn't there. Because he can't be everywhere at once. And yet we're so quick to blame the devil. Listen, there are things and forces at work in the world that are just naturally gonna pull us in because of our humanity and flesh. But we recognize we do not have to give in to that. Don't blame the devil on everything and use him as an excuse. But notice what we do read in God's word. Because we don't have to fall prey to the attacks against our flesh. We need to know the word. Ephesians 6, 17 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's the only offensive weapon given to us in the armor of God, Ephesians 6 spells out. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that's where you're gonna be able to fight back against the enemy. It's the word. It's not a, it's not a magical formula that causes Satan to run. He's gonna keep coming. But how we need to not just speak the word, but live according to the word. In other words, know the word. It's not just a magical form. You just go, okay, devil, oh, let me just flip around. I think it was Deuteronomy. Okay, let me throw some scripture at you in Deuteronomy. No, know the word of God and then live according to the word of God. Let it be the principles that guide you and govern your life. That's what ensures victory. And James 4, 7 says, therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Submit to God. Let him be the one that's governing your life through the word of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you here and we thank you, God, for all that you've given us in your word to live by. And we recognize that we are in a battle constantly. Let us never let up. Let us never sit back in comfort. Let us know that we want to stand guard. But more than anything, we just want to be led of your spirit empowered by your spirit and governed by the word of God because it's that which causes the enemy to flee. So may we submit to you wholeheartedly, resisting the work of the enemy and carry out your work in all that we do. Help us in that we need you. We pray this in your name.